Are you ready to take lead in your life? Well, today's the day. Join us on Leadership to Wealth with your host, Neil D'Souza. Welcome back to part two of the Leadership to Wealth podcast with my guest today, Henry Priesman. If you haven't heard part one of the interview, then please go check that out. Otherwise, let's continue. So they're going after you for the full tax, and they're also saying, why didn't you collect the HST, which you should have, so we want the 13% as well. So sometimes it's a tax nightmare. Right. you got to be very careful on those. Right. It, it sounds easy. You know, you pay your down payment, you sign a piece of paper, you go and do your thing for three or four years, and then you flip the paper and you make all this money. Yeah. Right. Easy peasy. Well, yeah. not so much. Yeah. Well, people were, I mean, people are espousing it's, it's the vast uh, wealth that you could build with it. And then uh, realizing that there were a lot of pitfalls in, in that. I'm sure there's still a lot of individuals that uh, are capitalizing that on that from a you know a personal residence if you're doing that I'm sure you're getting it at a much lower price than waiting for it to be built and then buying it but from a an investor business standpoint it's probably not the opportunity that it once was it's not it's uh, it's tougher to do builders have caught on they're charging higher prices uh, the CRA's caught on and they're collecting taxes more diligently. Yeah. Um, and, you know, real estate prices sometimes go down. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. They don't always go up. Uh, people don't know that. They don't realize that sometimes real estate prices actually go down. Yeah. They will soon. Um, but uh, they do. Um, right. And when that happens and you can't sell it and you have to close, and maybe just not your principal residence, you need another mortgage and you have one on your house, and the bank doesn't want to lend it to you, yeah. you've got a big, big problem. Yeah. Because you've already put that huge deposit down and the builder isn't going to give it back to you. Yeah. So you've got, uh, you've got some issues. Wow. Okay. So now my, my personal favorite, number four. Private. Yeah, my personal favorite too. <laughs> um, so private mortgages I like because um, it is, you, do, you don't have the headaches of ownership. Right? You don't have to own the property. So you have to deal with tenants. Mm-hmm. You don't have to deal with leaky roofs. You don't have to deal with furnaces that don't heat, mm-hmm. etc. Right? You don't have any of that. You lend your money on the security of a mortgage and you get paid interest. You are effectively the bank. Uh, and all you're concerned about there is to make sure that you get a good estimate of the value of the property that you're lending money against mm-hmm. and that you know what else is owed against that property. So if you're not in first position on a mortgage, well, how much is owing on the first mortgage and how much am I lending and what's the property worth, right? So you only lend a certain loan to value. You don't lend for the full value you lend for less, you know, no more than 80 or maybe 85% at the most. Mm-hmm. So there's a margin of error um, that if the money isn't paid back, you can sell the property and recoup your money uh, mm-hmm. that you've lent to this person who isn't able to or doesn't want to pay you back, mm-hmm. right? Then you also get to do a lot of due diligence about them beforehand. 
what do they do for a living? How much money do they make? Uh, what's their credit score? Um, what's their past history and so on, right? It's a little bit more creative, I think. Yeah. Uh, and you get to, to deal with a lot of different properties. Maybe you can only buy one or two properties in your lifetime. Yeah. But in, when you're doing mortgages and you do them a three-year term, you can lend against dozens over an investing career. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you can lend $20,000. You can lend $200,000. You can lend $2 million, depending on how much money you have to lend or how much you want to invest in this particular asset class. So, so much flexibility. Yeah. Yeah. I, obviously, I'm biased uh, being in this field and, and specializing in that. But why don't, why don't you uh, share with us um, some of the the mistakes that you see uh, investors making when when they go into private mortgages? I, I think they, the two most common mistakes are um, not doing your proper full due diligence, mm -hmm. right? So getting the, pro, the uh, current appraisal done, uh, not uh, checking out the borrower properly, uh, not doing the work that you need to do to make sure that this is a good opportunity as opposed to one that you should be passing on. Mm -hmm. um, the other mistake I see, um, I see lenders making is um, they, they lend on properties that they often don't understand, right? So if you don't know a lot about or have um, little experience with commercial properties, well, maybe you shouldn't be lending money on those and vice versa. You know, the, the different people have um, different interests or different comfort levels. Some people will only lend on properties in the city, or urban properties. I have lenders who will only deal in GTA properties. Mm -hmm. uh, some people only do commercial because they know they can get the tenant out if they don't pay. Right. Um, some people only want to do condos because they have an idea of what the value is because the condos are so similar. In a particular location so you got to be comfortable with the property uh, you got to do your due diligence with um, the lender uh, with the borrower excuse me as a lender and you've got to uh, realize that you, you don't invest more than you can afford to right. I think that's true of any investment but right. uh, because you can't guarantee that somebody will pay you every month and if you're counting on that money to live on to pay your bills right that's not money you should be investing in a private mortgage. It's something that should be in a safer government-backed investment, yeah. uh, not in an asset class like this one. Yeah. And, and obviously, uh, I see that in, in coordinating uh, private mortgages and handling them. I see that happen where sometimes people will advise that they have X, Y, Z, you know, dollars. And then meanwhile, what they really mean is that they've got a, a line of credit, which they are planning on using. And, you know, to, for some people's benefit, I, I understand they use that as a strategy where they will use a line of credit to lend that money out on. And, and that can be a good strategy, but you, you've got to be, I think, um, a more sophisticated investor than, than the beginner. Right. I know people who've used it. Um, use it effectively it can be a very good strategy, but it, it's got to be coupled with, with more experience than the average investment. Yeah, because of course, if there's 
any sorts of problems, you're still going to have that payment for your line of credit. And if the, if you have to go through the process of uh, taking the home and selling the home to get that, that to recoup that money, then what are you going to do in the meantime? No, that's right. Your bank, your, your lender doesn't care that you can't collect uh, from the person you lent the money to. They want to be paid yeah. and they want to be paid on time. Yeah. And if you can't, uh, if you can't do that while you're waiting to foreclose or to power sale your borrower, yeah. then you, you can't afford to invest that money. Well, okay. So let, let's, since we're going down this road, uh, let, let's just talk about that. If someone doesn't, if someone doesn't pay, then mm -hmm. what, what's the options for the, uh, the lender, the, the investor in this situation? What's the options for them? Um, well, there are three main ones. Uh, they're called foreclosure, number one, power sale, and a lawsuit. Um, the third one isn't necessarily an independent one. But a foreclosure, and people throw this word around a lot because it's used in the States a lot. Mm -hmm. But in Canada, foreclosure means that you take the property and the debt goes away. So you've lent somebody money, you've got a mortgage on their property, foreclose on them, that means now you're the owner of the property, but that borrower no longer owes you any money. It's like a trade, uh, a mortgage for property, okay? You become the owner, the debt is extinguished, and you've now got, instead of this loan, you've got this piece of property, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's number one. Uh, Power sale, which is by far the most common one in Canada, is when you sell the property to a third-party buyer uh, because the borrower has defaulted on the mortgage and you are exercising the right to sell the property because of that non-payment or that default, default to something else. And when the property is sold, you get your money back. Uh, so you get your principal, your interest, your cost, your fees, anything that you can get, uh, you can recoup from that power sale. Uh, and then the property belongs to this third-party buyer who's paid for, mm -hmm. uh, and you sell it not as the owner but as the lender, as right the bank, right. And the third uh, option is to sue the borrower for the money and to collect the uh, proceeds in a lawsuit. This is pretty unusual, and the only time somebody would do that is they knew there was a big pile of cash that the borrower was going to come into an inheritance, a divorce settlement, something coming down the road yeah. that they can get without having to bother with the property and selling and all that stuff. Oh, okay. uh, so I would say over 90% of the time, maybe 95% of the time, what the mortgage lender does, if there's a default, is sell under power of sale to recoup the money. So now in what situation would, a, uh, would an investor to go for foreclosure rather than power of sale? Well, imagine you've lent somebody, um, you know, $100,000 uh, on a mortgage and the property's worth $200,000. Mm -hmm. If you foreclose, you become the owner of a $200,000 property and you give up a $100,000 mortgage. Mm -hmm. So you've effectively doubled your money. Mm -hmm. and it's more advantageous, more lucrative to own the property, which is worth more than the money you've lent. Right. So sometimes people try to do that. Yeah. Now, the, if the borrower is smart, he can convert your foreclosure action into a power sale okay. to avoid this very same thing. Uh, sometimes people foreclose because they really need that property. 
because they're assembling for a subdivision or they want to expand the one they own next door or some unique reason. And that's why they want to own it as opposed to sell it for money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, I've heard of a situation where uh, there were two guys side by side owned uh, commercial properties, you know, the kind of with the store on the main floor and an apartment upstairs. Yeah. And the one that lent the, the neighbor the money really wanted to develop the property into like townhouses. Right. So when there was a default, he foreclosed, right. even though that uh, for anyone else, that would have been foolish. Pretty foreclosed because then he would have owned it. And now he can sell right. the developer because he's got the assembled land, right? Okay. So the, in those situations, it makes sense. In most situations, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, now, in, in the situation where you are, if you were in first position and there was a second position mortgage on the property, and you were to try and foreclose, what happens to the person in, in second position? If you're foreclosing, the person in second position stays there. They become a first mortgage because your mortgage is now extinguished and you become the owner. Oh, okay. All right. So um, that's another reason not to foreclose because then okay. you have somebody else's mortgage that you end up paying. Okay. So you, if you go power sale, then you have priority over everyone because you are in first position. Very interesting. Okay. So, um, but now there are times when you can go ahead and try it and foreclose if the homeowner does not take action to have it moved over to a power of sale, then you could be in a situation where you acquire a property at a, at a greatly reduced price. Yes, um, it happens if the without the um, requirement to provide a fair market value to the yeah, yeah. yeah it correct is. me if I'm wrong. In in a situation, if you were to if you were to have the first mortgage on a property and you were to power go into power of sale, mm -hmm. you it would be your your duty to still try to um, acquire fair market value for the absolutely yeah you have to sell it for a reasonable fair market value right uh and if there's money left over after you get paid that money goes to the owner right that belongs to them you can't keep it right but if you power if you foreclose yeah there's no money you just become the owner of the property right and uh obviously that can lead to a lot of unfairness which is why this um under the mortgages act the, the borrower can can make foreclosure into a power of sale action to prevent this kind of thing. Right. Right. Uh, I've seen it a couple of times. I don't remember the last time I've seen a foreclosure actually go through, but I've seen in recent years, people who've tried to foreclose. Yeah. Uh, for this very same reason. And, and, uh, the borrowers, because they got, you know, um, legal advice not allowed that to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, in fact, both times, it was attempted by someone who we both know, who I, whose name I won't mention on this uh, on this podcast. <laughs> but if you if you're curious, I'll tell you who it was later. You probably guess. Yeah, I I already know. Yes. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm sure. And actually, as you were discussing this, I was immediately thinking about the person who I know does this more than anyone else, 
they attempt to acquire the properties. And, you know, obviously it's not very fair to the, uh, to the homeowner, mm -hmm. um, but uh, they're, they're trying to um, make as much as they can in that situation. And I understand that as well, even if, if I don't agree with it. Yeah, I, I find that to be, you know, predatory. And I, I right. think it's, um, it's disgraceful. Uh, but it's, it's allowed if, if the borrower is unsophisticated and has no money to go to a lawyer or is just given up, right. and is too depressed to, to do anything, it, it can, can definitely happen. Right. Now, that's interesting, because I'm sure there's, I, I'd be curious to find out some of the benefits of of why the foreclosure process was originally created. Not that we'll discuss it at this point in time, but um, I'm sure there's uh, there's probably some reasoning behind how they came to the creation of, of the foreclosure process, but um, we can always discuss that. It, it, for your legal history podcast. We'll yeah, that's right. <laughs> I think that my uh, my nerd nerdy side is coming out just a little bit too much there. Um, obviously, you know how much I love uh, contract law and getting involved in the contracts themselves. But um, I'm so now. What are some of the, you know, in many years, what are some of the more common mistakes that you just see investors in general? making um obviously we've talked about some of the the ones for specific areas but what are the most common mistakes that you see in general um i think for investors for investors i mean across all asset classes you got just mortgage investors but investors in general i think the biggest mistake that investors make uh is they underestimate risk they don't um they don't give enough thought to the potential risk of any particular investment and i think it's very apt that we're talking about this at this time yeah right because it's every now and then something comes along that nobody foresaw that really takes a bite out of asset prices. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, uh, the pandemic is doing so right now, whether it's stock prices, real estate prices, uh, all kinds of asset prices have declined, business values, yeah. Yeah. right? Um, and really, if you ask somebody six months ago, what are the risks that investors are facing in, in 2020? Right. Nobody would have said pandemic. Right, of course. And if they did, you would have thought, what a crank, right? Yeah. Yeah. This person probably wears a tinfoil hat and thinks yeah. aliens are talking to them. Yeah. Or you might have believed that maybe a pandemic is possible, but to see what's, what's occurring as a result, I don't, no, yeah. one, no one could have imagined that. Like, and Neil, I'll admit it, obviously, I didn't foresee it. I'm sure you didn't foresee it. To me, you know, six months ago, even three months ago, pandemics were things that happened in other places. Mm -hmm. They didn't happen in Canada. Mm -hmm. They didn't happen in the United States. They happened in countries far away. Yeah. And we saw them on TV and we read about them online. We don't, they don't happen here. Uh, but apparently they do happen here. And when they do happen, uh, they can have very serious consequences. So people, people don't or underestimate 
these Taylor risk events, the uh, what former Defense Secretary of the United States Donald Rumsfeld called the unknown unknowns. The unknown. You, know, you have your known unknowns, or you know, how much uh, profit are the you know companies that make up the TSX sixty going to make this year? What is the price range multiple? Will the rates be lower or higher? Like nobody knows, but at least we know that these things affect these markets. But these unknown unknowns, you know, the financial crisis, 9-11, COVID-19, nobody can, can forecast them. Nobody can predict them. Uh, certainly not with any um, kind of accuracy that makes them, uh, being, that, makes, that allows you to act on them. Mm -hmm. But yet they have the biggest effect. Yeah. So what can you do? Well, what you can do is you can, you can be cognizant of this risk that something may come out of the blue to affect your investments to affect your ability to recoup your money. And you have to be cautious. You have to build in a margin of safety. As mm -hmm. uh, Ben Graham wrote in that classic, you know, The Intelligent Investor, Ben Graham and Warren Buffett's favorite book, which I heartily recommend to everyone uh, who is interested in investing. It's, a, it's an oldie, but yeah. it's a classic, an excellent, excellent book. The Intelligent Investor. By Ben Graham. I, I've heard of it, but I've I've actually not read it myself. So well, next time you uh, you're in the city, I'll give you my copy. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> um, so obviously, let let's let's just talk a little bit about the current times that we're in this current situation. Um, we are seeing we've seen a financial crisis before, um, not all that long ago, and. But we are seeing uh, a bit of a two-headed dragon this time around with the pandemic and we're in, in the middle of a financial crisis. What, what are your thoughts in general? And then what are your thoughts as it relates to uh, real estate and real estate investments? Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. Um, you know, while there's a lot of uncertainty in any kind of crisis, um, this one seems to be more pronounced, yeah. right? So we have not just um, unemployment and a very deep recession and financial hardship and business failures, but we also have these health issues and health risks uh, where people are afraid to go out. Yeah. Uh, people are afraid to, you know, nowadays when, I go people for a walk and shake hands or walk yeah. on the side of the sidewalk. Yeah, people are afraid. You know, everybody's in masks now, gloves on, and they're, you're, when you're walking towards someone on the sidewalk, either you veer off or they do so that they don't pass too close to you. Yeah. And that makes modern, urban, suburban living very difficult. Mm -hmm. It makes doing business very difficult. It makes running a business very difficult. Mm -hmm. So there's a great deal of uncertainty as to what, how things will go from here. Yeah. Whether the things that we used to do, you know, six, eight months ago, we'll be able to do in the near future. Right. I mean, how likely are you or really anyone to in the next year to go to a sporting event, a concert, a crowded restaurant, you know, a, a, a Canada Day fireworks celebrate? Like, how likely is that to happen? Yeah. Um, but if you think about all the businesses and jobs that depend on those events and those places that people normally socialize, it's a hell of a lot. 
Yeah. And uh, so people don't know, or am I, am I going to have my job? Am I going to make a living? Is my business going to be uh, thriving or at least surviving? Or am I going to go under? Mm-hmm. And that all affects every part of the economy, including real estate, right? So if you're, um, if you've got commercial properties and you've got restaurants or bars uh, that are your tenants, are they going to be able to pay rent? Mm-hmm. And if they can't, uh, how much can they pay? And if they can't, if they go under, who are you going to find to replace them? Mm-hmm. And if you can't rent out those properties, well, what are they worth? Yeah. And that cascades on down. Well, maybe then you can't make your mortgage payment and the bank has to take over. Well, who are they going to sell it to? Right? So it's, it's this domino effect of debt and um, failure and, and, uh, uh, and kind of business businesses going under that causes this cycle of of um, you know recession this recessionary depressionary cycle. Well, I'm I'm seeing something interesting happening even right now. We've been we've been on lockdown for a couple of months, and I it looks like people that were planning on putting their homes up for sale a couple of months ago obviously didn't at that point in time but i i've seen literally in the last couple of days uh just within my my area i've seen eight for sale signs all pop pop up simultaneously and um and we're not even the lockdown hasn't even been removed yet and yeah you gotta wonder uh are these people selling because they want to sell or because they have to sell now, traditionally, this is the time of the year where you want to start putting your house on the market. The spring market is, right. in Canada, traditionally the most active. Yeah. But um, it, it doesn't, to me, I don't know why anyone who doesn't have to put their property on the market right now, mm-hmm. put their property on the market. It doesn't seem to me to make a lot of sense mm-hmm. uh, in this kind of economic environment, this kind of health environment. It's mm-hmm. just difficult logistically to sell a house. Right. Let alone find somebody who's going to pay what you want them to pay um, and can afford to pay it. Right. Um, now, this is wide debate on this topic. Are we going to see a drop in prices? Uh, there is so much. There is so much media out there that will will actually say the opposite. Now, the the banks have started coming out, and economists are saying five to 10%, you, you know, drop in prices, in, in home prices. But there are so many sources that are saying prices are going up. Well, you know, I saw something on, uh, on the news today from the uh, Greater Toronto Real Estate Board that said the prices have gone down uh, year over year in Toronto. Obviously, volumes have dropped two thirds. Right. That's not surprising. Right. And I guess it shouldn't be surprising that when volumes drop, prices drop. Mm. Now, volumes have dropped by two-thirds, and prices, according to their calculations, have dropped you know, 2%. Uh, but it's one of the few drops in, in uh, quite a while uh, that we've seen. And another thing that I found even maybe even more interesting is rental rates have dropped. Really? Yeah. So yeah, what they're saying is that... Yeah, that is surprising. Rental rates have dropped. Yeah. Uh, a couple months ago, 
people were there were multiple offers on on rental condos in Toronto, especially in the core. And in the greater Toronto area, rents have fallen, not by a lot, but maybe one, two percent, but they've fallen. Now, why is, why, what would you attribute that to? I attribute it to the fact that people aren't looking to move. Yeah. Uh, they may be afraid, they're staying put. Um, people who may have uh, been looking to rent a condo or rent a house or rent an apartment have lost jobs or they're worried about their jobs mm -hmm. or their income's been reduced and they're no longer in the market. So I think the demand has significantly dried up per rental accommodation. Now that, that's Whereas landlords, if you have a place to rent, well, you want to rent it out. There's no good, no yeah. use to you sitting empty and waiting. Yeah. You want, you want somebody in there paying rent. Uh, but the renters themselves are maybe shying away a bit. Yeah. But that, that's really interesting because with uh, home, home sales dwindling, normally you then see a corresponding uh, raise in the rental markets, right? More people are choosing to rent rather than buy. Right. But now we're seeing a slight drop on both sides. Yeah, and, and this, I think, speaks to the kind of how frozen this market is. With the parents? Yeah. People are moving back home with the parents. They're not moving out. Yeah. Maybe they plan to. Maybe they, had, uh, they were living in a house with roommates mm -hmm. and wanted their own place. Not being so. Maybe recent graduates uh, can't find a job, so they're no longer yes. in the market yeah. for uh, they have come across for a rental. On that, yeah. So I think there's all kinds of reasons why um, rental demand has dropped um, and they all factor into the, the, the falling prices of rental accommodation. That's, that's very interesting. <laughs> I'm, I'm just trying to think. Because normally you think, well, people aren't buying, but they have to live somewhere, so they're going to rent instead of buy. Yeah. That's the trade-off, right? Am I going to yeah. buy? I'm going to rent. People aren't buying and they're not renting. Which right. is a little frightening, right? So, in the in the short term, all the predictions are that we're looking at a uh, you know a price drop for obviously a real estate. And I, I always like to say this: real estate is always going to be regional and local when mm -hmm. when you talk about it. I know we like to talk about national statistics and the the national home price and these things don't obviously exist. You're not going to find a national home. Um, what you're, you're going to find is a home, even in a specific, a property in a specific province is still going to be further priced differently based on where it is, what city it is in that province. And then of course, what area it is. And so, sure. you know, this will affect different locations very differently. Uh, obviously we, can see our, our brothers and sisters in uh, in Alberta are being affected greatly in this time um, with with everything that's happening with oil, but uh, we're also seeing uh, significant issues out west in British Columbia, where uh, they're running into uh, they're running into uh, deficit issues with regards to. Uh, the governments, right? The municipalities are actually running out of money out there. 
and now they're starting to talk about it here as well but you know i yeah I, I, smiling. I, i've I'm, heard that yeah 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 i i i was actually reading that um i believe vancouver has already requested from bc from the province uh is requesting um stimulus they're they're requesting uh aid because they are uh, beyond their balanced budget which they're required to of course run a balanced budget and so that's right um in canada in most provinces the legislation requires the municipalities to run a balanced budget every year they can't borrow or they can't go into deficit yeah same thing in ontario yeah uh so you either raise taxes or cut spending or get somebody to give you money right and since all municipalities are creatures of the province that they are located in right and they're regulated by the province they go to the province to see if they can get uh, the bailout mm -hmm. wow so many there's so many intricacies in what's happening the one of the things that i do want to talk about because it's obviously connected to it's connected to uh real estate investing is we are in a situation where right now even the courts are closed and and yeah. so that has impacts for what we've what we've spoken about can you talk to that at all well the um uh, the courts at least uh, i think pretty much across canada but definitely in ontario are closed for anything other than uh routine processing of the documents or emergency hearings mm -hmm. so if you had a trial scheduled it's been postponed mm -hmm. if you had a motion scheduled it's been postponed if you'd like to sue someone you know you can you can start the process but you can't go any further than that mm -hmm. so all these things are on hold mm -hmm. so if you want to collect a debt it's on hold if you want to you know have a divorce settlement it's on hold if you want to sue for an injury you've suffered in a car accident or on the bus or if you mm -hmm. slipped it's on hold uh even a lot of criminal trials that are not that serious are on hold mm -hmm. uh, so it creates a problem if you want to enforce any legal rights in the province mm -hmm. or anywhere else frankly in canada because you can't mm -hmm. Uh, unless you have an urgent matter, whatever that means, um, you wait. We wait. Okay, so that brings up an interesting question for me, is if we are seeing, right now, we're seeing people putting, people that w wanted to move, and they held off on putting their homes up for sale. Now that we're starting to see a number of homes hitting the market simultaneously and we're going to potentially see distressed situations right uh they get in they're they're beyond they're not going to be able to make their payments their debts have gotten beyond reach and they're going to put their homes up for sale and move on from there we've barely even talked about uh those that own airbnbs and how they're affected and how they're going to be affected for a while to come mm -hmm. um, because they're not opening up short-term rentals anytime soon and if you ask me i don't know if they're going to open them up for a while um, because of the conflict with the hotel industry i think they're going to try to save the hotel industry and airbnbers are going to have to 
figure it out for themselves. Um, so roll all of this together, all of these properties hitting the market simultaneously, and then as well, you've got properties that uh, may be in default, but but the uh, because the courts are closed, they, those can't those can't go to the market yet. They can't be put up for sale yet. And now those will also be added on to the pile when you when you put everything together. And it's gonna be like a fire hose. They're all gonna come out at the same time. Yeah, that, that seems like, I, I hate to call it this, but it seems like a perfect storm for, for a, a lot of downward pressure on, on homes. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you're right. I think there is gonna be a lot of downward pressure on homes. I think people who, there'll be more and more people who will need to sell. Yeah. Um, I think the defaults will eventually find their way into the market mm -hmm. whenever the green light is given to start enforcing those, those defaults. Um, timing is obviously uncertain. We don't know when that'll happen. Mm -hmm. But whenever it happens, whether it's the summer or this fall or beginning of next year, um, the, the downward pressure on real estate prices will, will be, I think, quite significant. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't make predictions. I don't know, but it seems to me uh, inconceivable that there is no decline in real estate prices. I, I, I would be shocked if there wasn't. Okay, so just purely speculation and opinion. Uh, we know that you know five to ten percent uh, seems a reasonable amount for the government to allow. Maybe even fifteen percent. But I, I can't see the government allowing much beyond that without trying to find some way to um, inject some sort of stimulus into the market. Because you, I don't know if they can afford to allow the real estate market to crash. Would you agree with that? Or? Well, I think it would be very, uh, a very bad thing for the economy if there was a real estate crash. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what the government, what else the government can do. They've already put the, the rates down to next to nothing. Yeah. Uh, they're handing out stimulus checks like handy at Halloween. You know, you get a check and you get a check and you get a check. Everybody's getting a check. Uh, I'm not really sure what they can do um, to stimulate the market. It seems to me that the, the real estate market is one of the few that's the most resistant to any kind of government manipulation. Yeah. Because once, um, once buyers lose confidence in the market, and once there's an event that holds people back from buying their house, mm -hmm. getting them to do so, I think, is quite difficult. Mm -hmm. Rebuilding that confidence, rebuilding that uh, belief mm -hmm. that the property will be worth more in the future and not less, I think is going to be challenging once the prices start falling. And that's where... Frankly, that's where the money is to be made for people who have the intestinal fortitude and the cash to jump in, mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's when things are bleakest yeah. is when the money's made. Well, historically, the government has allowed crashes to happen, but we've not seen these types of elevated values before, right? Right. And so it, it is interesting to, to watch over what's happening right now. And obviously with everything that's going on and people just worrying about their own safety, 
health and safety first, and we don't know, is there going to be a second wave of COVID-19 or, you know, is there, we, there's so little that we know about the pandemic itself that uh, it leads into so many questions. And so, you know, as you talk about uh, UER, uh, underestimating risk, um, what would you say to uh, investors at, at this time, whether they're, whether they're looking at buying and renting or fixing and flipping or private mortgages, what are, what would you say to investors as a, I would, say to, I would say to investors and, you know, I'm not an investment advisor. So, you know, all the caveats are present. You have to go into the transaction, into the investment with building in a margin of safety, mm -hmm. right? You have to know that if, you're going to be okay if the market is down 15 or 20%. Mm -hmm. You have to be confident that you can ride out a difficult period of several years and not have to liquidate your investment. Mm -hmm. Because as we all know, real estate is not a liquid investment. You can't you know, hit a button on your computer and get out of a position like you can in the stock. Mm -hmm. right? It's expensive and it's time consuming. And the carrying costs are significant. So you've got to know as a real estate investor that you can hang in there for the long term. Mm -hmm. whether you're buying a property or you're flipping a property or you're buying a pre-construction and holding that, uh, or you're investing in mortgages, mm -hmm. right? You have to know that this, I built in a margin of safety so that I'm going to be okay. If there's downturn in the market, I'm going to be okay. I don't need that money to pay my bills. I'm not going to, I'm going to have food on the table. I'm going to have a roof over my head. I'm going to have gas in the tank. Uh, if I have a couple of years to wait until that money comes back to me, mm -hmm. I'm going to be okay. And I'm doing this uh, on the understanding that it's a long-term commitment and that I understand that things can go wrong and that 20% of the value can go poof. Of course, more than 20% value can go poof, but right. you know, there's only so many things you can protect yourself against. Right. Right. If an asteroid uh, comes and hits the earth and then the value of your real estate investments are really irrelevant, right? Yes. Um, so the, there's only so much uh, protection or risk mitigation that you can do. Right. But you have to do it. Right. Right. Uh, well said. Uh, like a, as a lawyer, as you would expect a lawyer to. <laughs> um, so, you know, that, that uh, definitely makes sense. And I think it's good advice. It's, I, I think it's important. One of the things, the reason for me even starting this, this podcast was for, to, to try to remove a lot of the misconceptions in the different areas. And so, and I called it the leadership to wealth podcast, because there is a certain amount of leadership that each one of us needs to take. And I really appreciate what you're talking about here with um, most investors underestimating risk. And so if we're going to take leadership to creating wealth, the number one thing yet you're going to have to do is, is obviously um, manage your risk and, and do a better job of assessing risk, whether it be real estate, whether it be stocks, whether it be whatever type of investment class you go into, uh, there's going to be a certain amount of leadership that you're going to have to take just in your own life and with your own money to be able to get Absolutely. There. And you know what I find people do is uh, a common mistake is they extrapolate the present trends into the future right. on the assumption that 
you know, the present will just continue into the future just in a slightly different way. Um, and that never happens, at least not in any long-term sense. Something fundamental always changes. And it's very difficult, if not impossible, to predict what that thing will be. Mm -hmm. But what you've got to know is I've built in a margin of safety for myself where I know that if things do go wrong, Mm-hmm. I'm going to be okay. Whatever that thing is, I've, you know, I planned for a, you know, a difficult patch of years and I, I'm pretty confident I can write it out. Mm-hmm. So that's what I recommend to people. That's, that's the way I try to structure my own investments too. Yeah. Right. And I think that's the way you, you try to structure your clients investments. If you're advising people. Don't assume that everything is going to be great. In fact, assume the opposite, that things will not be great. Yeah. And what are you going to do if, if something goes wrong? That's right. How will you manage? Are you going to be able to ride this out? Or do you have to liquidate and sell at the worst possible time where you're going to have the maximum possible losses? Right. It's exactly what you don't want to do. Right. Right. Um, you want to be buying then, not selling then. Mm-hmm. Right. Because the people, if people have the guts and the foresight and the, um, as I said, the intestinal fortitude, when you buy at the point of maximum pessimism, there's no place to go but up, right? And if you buy when things are great and everybody's making money and things are perfect and, you know, it's all butterflies and, and unicorns, there's no place to go but down, eventually. Right. Well, it's, it's interesting to me that if people have not uh, experienced a down market, then they're always going to be expecting things to be good and they will not prepare themselves. I, I've actually been telling a lot of people right now is the best time to start a business because you're going to look around and take into account things that someone that started when everything was good would never have thought to take into account. Absolutely right. Business for the worst possible scenario. Hence, when a good time comes, you're, you're already ready to go. And Neil, I think I agree with you completely. If you're a young person and you're starting out in your career or in business or in investing, if you're beginning now, the fates have almost given you a gift <laughs> of lower asset prices. You can buy things cheaper than you could just six months ago. Um, And that's great for the younger set. Guys a little more vintage like ourselves, uh, maybe that's not so good because you've already accumulated a few things and they've gone down in price. Um, But, uh, you know, if you're starting out now, as bad as it may look on the surface, I think, you know, you're going to build resiliency. You're going to, have a different mode of thinking. You're going to have a different way of approaching the world and, and how you navigate your business and professional the work career. Um, and, you know, once you go through a set of these crises, you, you know, you don't panic, you become more resilient. Mm-hmm. You got to build your personal resilience. Mm-hmm. So I've been through the early nineties real estate crash. I've been through the dot-com bubble. 9-11, financial crisis, a few smaller ones sprinkled in, and now this. 
and maybe this is the biggest one of all because of what it is um but you learn you learn that you know eventually there's a way out right that things will will be better and that uh you know if you keep your wits about you you look for opportunities and you don't panic plan uh, think about your risks that you're going to be okay you're going to do fine okay so <laughs> given given all of that uh what's next for you uh you're you're still teaching i'm still teaching in fact i'm teaching more um this summer than i've ever taught before okay um i've got yeah know, more students so i've got more courses on my plate and i'm teaching remotely yeah. and i'm i'm gonna have to learn how to do that effectively which you know i've never done that before so it's going to be something new that I have to learn and get used to and, and cope with. Um, or, you know, probably wouldn't have had to do that if it wasn't for this crisis. Right. And I'm going to have to um, pivot my business in, in, um, in a way that will maximize the revenue coming in because the, the reduction in, in real estate volume has affected my business significantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone in the business has been affected significantly, so we're gonna. I'm gonna have to learn and and uh, um, to to structure the business or to pivot the business to to maximize revenue. Well, I hear that um, everyone's saying that there's going to be a whole lot of divorces after the uh, lockdown. Is For me, yes. <laughs> so you may have to pivot and add that. To- <laughs> add that to. I tell you what. What has been. The growth industry for me is doing people's wills. Okay. Uh, yeah. The the uh, the virus and the being cooped up at home and watching the news yeah. has caused them to feel a greater sense of mortality. Yeah. So we're doing a lot more of those than we used to do. Now, do you remember a conversation you and I had about that? About I do. <laughs> yeah, I do. Did, didn't think it was as great an idea then, but uh, sounds like a good idea now. It sounds like a much better idea now. <laughs> Uh, that's great. So, uh, Henry, as we uh, as we wrap up here, um, what uh, as as you move forward, what are uh, things that you're trying to transition? You know, with business and that, is there anything else that you want to leave? Any other message you want to leave with the listeners? And uh, and then also, if people want to get a hold of you, if uh, they're looking for a lawyer um, or they want to get more information, uh, also if you could give us uh how people can get a hold of you yeah sure Uh, but i think as far as you know people are obviously listening to this podcast because they want to take greater control Mm -hmm. um of their own investing lives or their personal financial futures right so they they want to take on a greater role of responsibility in their families and their own lives right Mm -hmm. um so given that i say to those people if you're thinking of pursuing a particular investment or a particular um, uh, type of uh, investment knowledge, do your research, use all the available resources available to you, talk to people, ask questions, find out what people who got experience have to say, and then make your, but don't allow others to think for you, make your own judgment in the end. it's your money, it's your family, it's your future. Um, the research is important, but at the end of the day, you know yourself and you have to make your own decisions as to what you're going to pursue and what you're not going to pursue. 
So I think that's very important. Uh, nobody can tell you what you need. Nobody knows what you need more than you know yourself. And once, you know, know thyself, that ancient maxim, I think is very important, especially times like these. Um, as far as getting hold of me, um, easiest way is either by phone or by email. The office number is 416-439-9559. Uh, the easiest way to get a hold of me by email is hplaw, H-P-L-A-W, at bellnet.ca. That's B-E-L-L-N-E-T dot C-A. Uh, and of course, they can always get a hold of you, and you know how to get a hold of me. So that's also... <laughs> It's true. an easy way for, for somebody to get a hold of me if they need to. Yeah. Well, you know, Henry, um, we, we've gone over time, over time, but I want to thank you for uh, all of the wisdom that you shared. Uh, obviously, the wisdom that you've shared with me uh, over the years that we've known one another and, um, and what we'll continue to share as we continue to help people uh, down their investment journeys. So, uh, but I do want to thank you for coming on to the podcast and being uh, one of my first guests. And uh, we'll definitely do it again in the future. And, and, and we'll see you shake hands again at some point. Well, maybe a few years from now, yeah. But <laughs> we'll, we'll have to wait. Neil, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on, on the podcast. I really enjoyed our talk. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the Leadership to Wealth podcast. We've got much more coming up in the weeks ahead, but I want to ask that if you can take the time to give us some feedback, we really appreciate it. Really means a lot to me. And uh, if you just take just a couple of seconds, it really does mean the world. And don't forget to like and follow. We'll see you guys next time here on Leadership to Wealth.